Welcome to PDI, boys and girls. It's time for another public display of imagination adventure. So hop on board and shush the crowd because we're about to step inside the pages of another thrilling bestseller. And there's no telling what we might find. for the Public Display of Imagination podcast is provided by Joe King, Jayvon Fettinger, and Zachary Motes. You can find the complete playlist from Milltown Road Band on Spotify. Welcome to Public Display of Imagination, where we talk to authors about their deepest, darkest secrets, the pet they always wanted to have, the superhero they always wanted to be, and sometimes we even talk about their books. I'm your host, Mark Dwayne Combs, with any luck, no one will ever find out that you listen to this show. And if they do, you can always play that I Lost a Beck card. And now that we've got all that nonsense out of the way, let's find out who we're talking with today. Now people know when they see me coming that it's best to move aside. Today's guest is a peer-reviewed scholar in the fields of biblical studies and ancient Near East mythology. He earned his Ph.D. in the Hebrew Bible and Semitic languages from the University of Wisconsin at Madison in 2004. His studies include the ancient Near Eastern civilizations, including Israel and Egypt. He taught biblical studies on the college and seminary level for over 20 years, and he was the scholar-in-residence for Logos Bible Software for 15 years. He's currently the director of a school of theology located in Jacksonville, Florida. He is the author of several best-selling books, both in the fiction and non-fiction genres. Today, we're going to get a quick walk through two of his most recent non-fiction works, one detailing what ancient Near Eastern literature has to say about angels, and the other detailing what the same volume of work has to say about demons. Join us as we peel back the curtains and shine a light on what ancient literature has to say about the captivating and mystifying realm of the supernatural with our tour guide for today's adventure, Dr. Michael S. Heiser. Mike, thanks so much for setting aside the time. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me back. It's always fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. You've got two new books that we're going to dig into today, but in presentations, You've often said something along the line of we would do ourselves a favor if we read the Bible in the same way we would read a work of fiction. Now, I'll let you correct that paraphrase if it's a little imprecise, but the point is that we most commonly approach the Bible as if it's some sort of cosmic supernatural textbook, and in so (laughs) doing, we overlook the fact that in its purest sense, it actually is a piece of literature, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you have it right. I that that is what I say. You know that that we would get a whole lot more out of the Bible if we did approach it, you know, like it was fiction. Because for the most part, um, you know, the Bible is story, but 
you know, we're, we're sort of not taught to think about it that way. Mm. you know, at least in, you know, in, in a traditional typical church context, you know, it is a rule book. It is a, it's a textbook, you know, it's open here and look at the bullet points and there'll be a quiz afterwards. You know, it, it we, we really make it terribly boring, <laughs> you know, but it, it, it's story, you know, and yeah. this is, uh, you know, it, this is the ancient world. Not everybody had a Bible. Few people did, and and so the the whole the, the whole worldview, you know, affects this. And you know, really, what the average person who was, you know, serious about their faith, they they would sort of encapsulate it in story anyway. Mm-hmm. And that's really how what a lot a large part of what we find in the Bible began as story and oral tradition. And so this is a very natural mode through which. You know, to not only transmit, you know, the history of, of ideas, uh, in this case, you know, the Israelites or the Jews or, you know, when, once you get to the first century, it's Jesus and the apostles and the early church and whatnot. But, you know, that that's very normal. But we've just sort of lost that along the way. You know, it becomes this thing that, you know, we, again, we just have to sort of study as though it, you know, there was an exam and I'm getting three credits for this. You know, it, we really lose a lot. And I think that's why, um, you know, websites like the Bible project uh, on YouTube, but they have over 2 million subscribers now and they're very visual oriented. And it's just, they're, they're just so well done. You know, they, they, they put 50 grand into each video. I mean, what mm-hmm. can you say? You know, they have a huge donor base, but it's, it's really transmitting Bible stuff as story visually. And what I try to do is, I try to get us to think about the Bible as story, you know, just in, in, in terms of the written text. You know, I'm not a I'm not a graphic artist person, but that that really I think connects with a lot of people um, today. You know, they they're just tired of the of the grocery list. You yeah. know, it's just dull. It's boring. I mean, what 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 can you say? Yeah, I think the flip side of that coin sometimes, and I don't want to sound irreverent here, folks, but the flip side of that coin sometimes is what I would call the Chinese fortune cookie approach, where you crack open a text, read 15 words, and then spend the next 30 minutes telling me why I should feel good about that. Yeah, yeah. You know, just think about if we approached fiction that way. Yeah. You know, I mean, like Harry Potter, you know, something like that. Well, yeah, you can sit there and talk about what it means to you or how this makes you feel, but... You know, anyone who's really acquainted with the story, they're just going to be sitting there thinking, what an idiot. <laughs> you know, I think I think we just need to, to you know, approach the story for what it is and try to be close readers and intelligent readers. You know, when I say that to audiences, you know, just read it like it's fiction. What, what I'm trying to get at is, is we in, we just know that when we pick up a novel, we just read that differently. We expect the writer to be manipulating us. We expect the writer to have an agenda. We expect misdirection. We expect, you know, oh, I'm going to see that place again. I'm going to, I'm going to meet that character again. I'm going to see that car again. I'm going to hear that part of that dialogue again. You know, it, we, we just intuitively know that the writer's trying to do something to us. Right. And, and that, that's what story is. And, and, and that's how the Bible, you know, overwhelmingly, you know, the, the vast majority of the content is written that way. That's what it is. But, you know, if we're not thinking of it that way, we're not sensitized to sort of 
you know, expecting those things. We have a t- an entirely different set of expectations if we're reading a textbook for a geology class or something like that. You know, it's just dry information. Like I said, bullet pointed it, you know, over here, bullet face, memorize that term. You know, it, we, we just have an entirely different set of expectations. And we, and when that happens with the Bible, we really don't get out of it what the writer intended us to get out of it. Yeah, well, let's yeah. let's dig into your book on angels because I I see what you're saying in that same way as as I peel open a novel and I begin to read, I'm suspending all expectations of what I should find in that text and letting the author kind of drive the narrative of where it's going to take me, and I'm open to that journey, and I think we need to be a little bit more open to the biblical text in the same way that the people who wrote this actually were trying to convey a message. And when we superimpose our expectations over the top of that, mm-hmm. it's like throwing a wet blanket over everything. And yeah, you're right. It does come across as dull and boring, especially in some of the Old Testament segments, which is what you kind of specialize in. So let's let's dig into the Angels book. Can we do that? I, I've got, sure. and I'm referring to it as Angels, but I know that's not the full title. So give me the full title of the book real quick. Yeah, the, the the immediate title, the primary title is Angels, but the subtitle is the really important one. <laughs> what what the what the Bible really says about God's heavenly host. Not all members of the heavenly host are angels. Like why would he say that? And that is what I'm trying to get people to, you know, right from the cover, you know, that you know, we we are taught in this in this area, like angels, demons, all this, you know, supernatural stuff, basically if, if you're a churchgoer what you think you know about this topic has been basically filtered and diluted and transformed and, and in many cases poorly or wrongly by your church tradition. Not all members of the heavenly host are angels. Okay. And, and just saying that to the average churchgoer, they're like, they'd be looking at you like you have two heads, you know, mm-hmm. like what, 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 what else are they? You know, you know, what, you know, what are you saying? Uh, you know, there's the Bible has a lot of different vocabulary, and and the vocabulary is is really some of it's really loaded. Because if I could use the fiction analogy again, you know, let, let's say you're you're midstream in Lord of the Rings, okay? You know, well, you run into characters there, or or place names, or or you know, person names, whatever. Well, they have histories. I mean, why do we think Tolkien, you know, came up with this whole alternative, you know, history in the Silmarillion? You know, it, you know, for for people who are really into it. If they knew all that stuff, they would, you know, they'd be transformed as a reader of, of the other stuff, as good as it is. But, you know, these characters have histories. They've done things, good and bad, before. You know, they they have relationships. They they're known for things. You know, again, good or bad. And and the Bible is the same way. You, know, you we don't just often have neutral terms. We have a, a whole variety of terms. And what we do in church tradition is, oh, the white hats are angels, the black hats are demons, and then, you know, move on. You know, that's, that's the end of the story. And, and that's like, you know, 10% of what you're going to run into. Well, are there any common modern day perceptions that we have that maybe, maybe they do have some accuracy to them? Maybe we can <laughs> go, well, you know what? If that kind of fits. We can keep with that and build from here. You know, it's it's really hard because I I think the I think the 
the wrong ideas are, are more numerous <laughs> than the correct ones. You know, it's, I, I say that because I, I mean, I've had my head in this for so many years, but you know, I mean, I'll just start with some of the myths. You know, there, there's no place in the Bible that says angels have wings. What? Okay. There's nothing like that. You know, when it comes to the bad guys, you know, we have Milton's Paradise Lost who that, that's really doing our theology for us that, oh, a third of the angels rebelled with Satan before humans were created. And that's why where we get all these bad guys. There's there's no passage in the Bible that actually says that. You know, you you, you have to wonder, again, I, I, I went through this process like, like where do we get this stuff? Mm-hmm. Like how in the world, you know, did, did we come out over here when, when again, if you pay close attention, you know, to, to what the text is saying, you know, it's just not there. And there are reasons for that. I talk about, you know, in the book why why some of these ideas develop and, and whatnot. But on the flip side, yeah, you know, th- there is rebellion in, in the heavenly host. You know, so we do have, quote, unquote, fallen angels. But, again, fallen angels aren't demons. They're actually, those are actually different critters. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, for instance, uses terms like principalities and powers. Those aren't demons either. Mm. They're something else, you know. It, but it, but again, we 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 we're sort of in the ballpark there. That okay, we have beings here that are supernatural. They're disembodied by nature. They can take physical form and do physical things if they want to. They have free will. They can you know make this or that decision. They can become corrupted. They can be loyal. You know. So some of these ideas that you even see in Hollywood, you know, you know, fictional movie portrayals of you know, angels or demons. I mean, some of that is consistent, you know, with what, what you read you know, actually in the Bible, but a lot of it isn't. All right. Now, I want to back up for just a second because I know that we're going to pull a lot of our information from what the Bible says. I mean, that's how we opened our conversation. But some of the information in this book is not only drawn from the biblical text, but also from ancient Near Eastern literature, which you mm-hmm. also specialize in. For the sake of reference, let's do a fictitious modern-day first-century mashup, so to speak, and merge the two worlds together. If, if we were to pack up the kids in the DeLorean and take a run back to an operational first-century library, and I realize they may be difficult mm-hmm. to find, but let's say we got lucky. We're mm-hmm. somewhere in the ancient Near East. They have a representative volume of literature from that time period on hand. Give give us a few manuscripts that our ancient librarian might be able to suggest. Yeah, if if your ancient librarian was literate and multilingual, you know, if you if you went to the library at Alexandria, for instance, you know, or, or something like that, uh, you're gonna find texts see we, we don't really realize that a lot of the texts that were written in Egyptian or you know cuneiform you know Mesopotamian whether it's Akkadian or Sumerian or whatever a lot of these texts actually do get translated into Greek you know they they they're Hellenized so even in translation the literate reader is going to have access to a lot of that stuff but if if they're multilingual and again and the scribal class typically was you know you're going to have you know stories about you know, primeval days. You're going to know about Gilgamesh. You're going to know about Adapa. You're going to know about, you know, this or that ziggurat. You're going to know about Marduk. You know, you're going to know about all these gods from the ancient Near East and, and Egypt and whatnot. They're, they're actually classical scholars who specialize in this. Classical scholars being Greek and Roman, Greek and Latin stuff. And there are some very famous works that show that what the Greeks believed, which is closer to us, you know, like Greek mythology, that actually draws very heavily 
on ancient Near Eastern material, especially Mesopotamia. Mm. There's a lot of cross-fertilization because lo and behold, all these, all these peoples and places are in the Eastern Mediterranean. Chances are good that they ran into each other. <laughs> and chances <laughs> are good. trade or warfare or whatever. You know, they, 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 they travel. They, they do normal things. You know, they, there's a cross-fertilization. There's a cross-pollination of ideas. And this includes the biblical world, you know, as, as well. Um, so they're, they're writing responses to other belief systems. They are looking for overlaps between belief systems and talking about that. You know, you're, you're going to run into all of this. So you actually have, w- would have a wide exposure in one form or another of the gods of the ancient world in all these other regions and this sort of the primeval stories you know, of, of how civilization came about and how this or that city-state you know, came about and what happened here and there. And, and then the literature, you know, again, the, the religious worldview and the ideology, you're going to have a, a real broad exposure to that sort of thing. I'll give you one example. Pe- people are kind of freaked out by this, but among the Dead Sea Scrolls, there, there you know, is, is a book that scholars today know as the Book of the Giants. Well, Gilgamesh, he's in there by name. Now, how in the world would a, would a Jewish scribe living, let's say, 200 B.C., how would he know about Gilgamesh unless somebody in that era or a little bit before had been able to tap into that literature? Hmm. You know, I mean, it, it, this is just what you have. You, it, these things don't happen in isolation. Texts don't get written or read in isolation. Uh, as I like to say, believe it or not, you know, to, to again, churchgoers, believe it or not, folks, you know, the Bible didn't just drop from heaven. God providentially used people and people read books. The biblical writers actually read books, and some of those books helped them express the, you know, the ideas they have to communicate to their own audiences at, you know, for any given point. But, but again, we have this myth that the Bible is like a channeled book. And I say, no, that's for UFO cults, okay? The Bible is not a channeled book. You know, people don't get zapped and their minds don't – their brains don't get disengaged and then God downloads information into their heads and their arms and you know, hands start – waving and flailing away and then they snap out of it and look down at the at the scroll in front of them and think oh i can't wait to read that you know it, it's a human enterprise across the board and part of that is again exposure to this other literature so safe to say without me oversimplifying it that an educated person in the first century who may have been a person who was going to write things on their own at some point in time Read things. They read other they read literature. Things. Wow. I mean, think okay. think about what you would do. You know, when when you sit down to write something, whether it's a blog post or a book, you have a, uh, you know, you have sort of the sweet spot audience in your in your head, and you're going to assume that the people who would be interested in reading what you're producing now are going to be able to read. They're going to be informed. They're going to be literate. They're going to be able to decipher some of the things. You know, what what you're putting down. They're going to be able to pick up. You're not going to you're not going to write to maybe the, a third grader, you know. You're going to write to an adult, that, and you assume that that adult has had exposure to a you know a, a certain amount of content in life. And the biblical writers are doing the same thing. They're they're writing, you know, from their own knowledge base to people that you know they want to connect with. That they they're going to assume you're going to know a certain amount of stuff that I'm going to put in here, and I'm going to drop little nuggets and little breadcrumb trails along the way that I I, I suspect that. The real reader that I'm, I'm I'm shooting for here, they're going to be able to, you know, figure that out. They're going to be able to understand that. 
So when we talk about the information that's in this book on angels, it didn't just come from a handful of verse references in the Bible. There's a broader cultural aspect of literature that also contributes, correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Okay. Absolutely, right. just in, in many ways. Wanted to make sure I understood that. Now, let's get an idea of what we're really kind of looking at. In the book, you note that angel is more of a job description than mm-hmm. it is an identification of what something actually is. In other words, angel is more of an explanatory term rather than an ontological one. Am I understanding that correct? Yeah, yeah. That, what I do in the first chapter of that book is I, I say that, you know, there's basically three buckets. You know, you can put the vocabulary in. There are ontological terms, terms that tell you what a member of the heavenly host is. Think, then these are terms like spirits. Okay, you know, they're, they're spiritual beings. It gives you something of the ontology of, of of one of those guys. Okay, and then you have sort of what I call rank, you know, hierarchical terms. Uh, that the phrase sons of God is actually one of these because that, you know, again, people who've been reading the Bible for a little bit of uh, a time, they, they know that sons of God is, is a way that members of the heavenly world, you know, are, are referred to. But the term is actually taken from the royal court, the ancient Near Eastern kingship. And it's the idea of, of sort of a, an elite class in terms of rank and, and responsibility you know, just like you would – you'd get the best jobs. You'd get the most important positions if you were related to the king. Okay, well, it's, it's the same thing over here. God is a king and he has sons. and you know, he, So the, the, the royal court terminology is used. And you know, it's not really ontology. It's not a specific job description, but it's really about where they rank in the pecking order. And then the third bucket is, is these, are these functional terms. Again, essentially job descriptions. And angel is one of those. It just – the term malak in Hebrew just means messenger. That's all it is. You know, super, a supernatural being, member of the heavenly host, takes a message to somebody. Okay. Well, when he does that, his you know, with the little the little lapel pin that he wears says Malak. I'm the messenger for today. You know, so it, it's a it's a thing that's done. It's a task. It's not about ontology. What you're describing, Mike, it doesn't sound like, and I guess this is a preconceived notion that maybe I had bought into at one given time. It doesn't sound like all angels are created equal. It also doesn't sound like all angels were designed for the same purpose. Are some angels more powerful? Do some have a more distinct purpose for being? Well, let, let, let's use humans as an example. Okay. On one level, humans are all equal. Okay, we, we've got the DNA sequence that says, yep, you're a human. <laughs> right, okay. That's where <laughs> right? I fit so in. We've got, if we, we, got, we share the basic ingredients, but... But within you know that ontology, yeah, you know, some there are humans that are better at this or that. You know, we have different abilities, different intelligent levels, different aptitudes, and so that that's the way to think about you know the the heavenly host. You know that that ontologically, okay, they're spirits, they're they're holy ones, or you know, again, one of some of these ontological terms. But within that world, if we want to call it the spiritual world, yeah, there there are differentiations going on in terms of rank and power and ability and aptitude. I mean, you, they they just get described with certain tasks and having certain abilities and certain you know spheres of influence or authority. So, I think the the good analogy for us is how we think about ourselves. You know, how we think about you know humanity. We, in one sense, yeah, we're all the same. You know, sort of. I mean, we're ontologically we're all human. 
but we're a whole lot more than that. You know, there, there, there are gradations. We're not all clones, you know, okay. If, if we can use that sort of awkward term, it's going to break down somewhere, but that's the best one I can think of on the spur of the moment. We're not all the same in ability and aptitude and so on and so forth. And so that's a good analogy for, for what the Bible's mapping out in terms of the spiritual world. All right, so we've spent almost 20 minutes now talking about the good guys, but obviously there's another side to this coin. You dealt with that in book two. There's some supernatural beings. They are at odds with their creator, right? Yeah, yeah. This is where I typically get in trouble because, again, we're just taught by tradition, white hats, angels, black hats, demons. And I'm saying uh, that's, that's just really an inadequate picture. We're going to crack open the pages of Mike's book on demons on the other side of this break. What does the Bible really have to say about the powers of darkness? Mike Heiser is my guest. We're talking about his book on angels, his book on demons. Two books in one in this adventure today. Boys and girls, don't go anywhere. We will be right back. This is Barry Schwartz, the editor and founder of the Shroud of Turin website, Shroud.com, and you're listening to Public Display of Imagination with your host, Mark Dwayne Combs. Walking away from another useless day, don't care where This podcast is made possible by the generous support of those who have become friends of the show through Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash p-d-i and become a valued part of the show. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash p-d-i. Your support moves that needle. We're at the midpoint of this week's adventure, and there's more great conversation just ahead. But I want to take a moment to thank those of you who are podcast subscribers and those of you who help to support the show. We love bringing these conversations your way, but there's a physical cost involved in producing each weekly adventure. Without support from our podcast family, bringing you the show each week just wouldn't be possible. One of the best ways you can show support for the show is by using the links to Amazon found throughout the Public Display of Imagination website. Whenever you use one of our links to go to the Amazon site, we get a small percentage of override on your purchase, whatever it might be. So if you clicked on a book title, but ended up purchasing a new miniature hothouse for your fall plantings, or a new desk chair for your home office, because you leaned back a little too far a couple of days ago, and the old one's a goner, well... Your purchase just helped the show because you used one of our links to get to the Amazon site. So if you're going to Amazon, please let us be your doorway. The Sendable Social Media Management Tool is another great way you can show support for the show. If you're an author, a publicist, a publisher, or anyone who uses social media to help promote your business, I promise you, you won't find a more useful application anywhere. Like Amazon, we've got links to Sendable on almost every page of the website. Click on it and take a free 14-day test drive on us. We've been using Sendable for over a year, and I couldn't recommend it more highly. One last thing. Don't forget to check out the host page for this adventure. 
I realize that you're probably listening to the podcast via iTunes, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Deezer, or one of a host of other podcast listening platforms. The adventure host pages on the Public Display of Imagination website are where you will find direct links to the authors, their books, and their social media pages. You'll also see links to the Inside the Writer's Workshop segment that we recorded with today's guest. We've just uploaded it to the Public Display of Imagination YouTube channel, and you can watch it directly from the host page for this adventure. It's always one of my favorite segments, and we're excited to bring these extended author interview segments your way via our YouTube channel. So I hope you'll check out Public Display of Imagination on YouTube and explore all of our fantastic Inside the Writer's Workshop conversations that we have uploaded for you there. Now, let's get back to this week's PDI Adventure. This is Tom Young, author of the World War II novel Silver Wings, Iron Cross, and you're listening to Public Display of Imagination with your host, Mark Dwayne Combs. I know what you're thinking. Think you got me figured out. All right, we're back. My guest, Dr. Michael S. Heiser. We're talking about his book on angels, book on demons. We dealt with angels in our first segment. We're going to dig a little bit into the pages of book two, the book on demons here in our second segment. Mike, I know for every author, they have to have a place online. And I'm very familiar with your website and the many things that, uh, as far as information and resources that are available on that website, it's just a wealth of information. But authors also have to have a presence on social media. You can't be everywhere, but you have to be somewhere. If someone that's Meeting your work for the first time, coming into context with it, wants to find out a little bit more about you. What's the best place for them to follow you on social media? Where can they find your webpage? Yeah, I think right now uh, the best place would probably be uh, Instagram. Uh, but I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. Uh, I, I have an author page on on Facebook, just Michael S. Heiser. Um, but my homepage is dr, as in doctor, msh.com. And so that, that's sort of the nerve center of a lot of this other stuff. But, you know, the way you describe it, the word overkill might be appropriate. Because <laughs> it's like I've got, I've got websites, I've got a YouTube channel, I've got the Naked Bible podcast. I mean, I've, I've actually got more than one podcast. It, you know, it, it's just I'm spread out all over the place. I am not hard to find uh, just via Google. But if you want to go somewhere quickly, it's drmsh.com. Yeah, I don't think you mentioned YouTube. You've you've got uh, the YouTube. Well, did it move or is it still there? The Fringe Pop channel. The Fringe Pop channel, yeah, Fringe Pop three two one is still there. Okay. You know, we they're in the process of moving over to Vimeo as well, but it's still there. Yeah, and if you want things that are out on the Fringe, well, that's where Mike kind of pinches those ideas on the cheek and uh, gives you a little bit more backstory on that. And Mike, you mentioned Instagram as your number one place on social media. Almost everyone I talk to says, "Yeah, I have an Instagram page. I don't know how it works." You're the first person that's led with that. <laughs> So, well, you know. I, 
I say that's the best place because that that's where my wife is the most active. <laughs> okay, so that's where pictures of the pugs can be found. Is that what it that's is? Where pictures of the pugs are. Yeah, and I I actually have somebody for the first time managing my social media, and so they're active on all of them. But the new favorite seems to be Instagram. Okay, so you have someone managing your fantasy baseball team as well, or is that still Maury? That's me. Okay. That's that's me. <laughs> I'm just checking. Naked Bible Podcast you mentioned, and I would be remiss if I didn't ask, because some people are going to hear that title and they're going to go, what in the world? Naked <laughs> Bible. A lot of people are familiar with that because they're subscribers to the podcast. They follow mm-hmm. it. It's a terrific podcast. But our audience has a little bit of a different waiting pool for your work, I, I believe. Naked Bible. Where does that term come from? Why do we use it? Well, I, I like it because what we're trying to do is we're trying to, to do biblical studies with the denominational preferences and creedal you know, traditions stripped away. So there, hence the metaphor. You know, we're, we're, I'm just trying to do you know, the Bible in its own contexts, its own worldview, with nothing else sort of added on in, in terms of church tradition. So hence we call it Naked Bible. Okay, so whether my background was in the Catholic Church or some Protestant uh, derivative, I could not be comfortable. I, I, it's not going to matter one way or the other. Yep, not yeah. going to matter one way or the other. So we, we emphasize meta narrative, and again, any any given topic that we address, I'm trying to get people to think about the Bible the way the original writers and the original readers would have thought about it. So I like to say, for the Old Testament, I want the ancient Israelite living in your head. And for the New Testament, I want the first century Jew living in your head. And your test case for the podcast was the book of Leviticus, which folks, I've, <laughs> right. and, and he's laughing at me, I've actually listened through the Leviticus series, I think three times now. I do a lot of work in the yard. It keeps me company, the podcast from time to time. Right now, I'm going through the book of Acts, which is fascinating. But just give me a, a handful of biblical studies that you've done through that podcast. Sure. I mentioned Leviticus and Acts. What are some of the others? Yeah, well, and that was deliberate because, I, I, as I said at the beginning, if, if we can get an audience doing Leviticus, we can do anything here. Leviticus uh, was so interesting. We, it really, really was. I think so, you know, because yeah. it's this weird ritual stuff, you know. But uh, Leviticus we did. We did Obadiah, Acts. We've done the book of Hebrews. We've done the book of Ezekiel. Uh, I think Ezekiel was the last. No, Exodus. Yeah, book you spent Exodus three years in Exodus, series. right? Something like that. Yeah, it took a while. Yeah, okay. All right. Yeah, and, yeah, and you do some ones. topical studies. Now, I'm still holding out hope that you will one day get to the point where you're like, okay, I want to pick out a few. And maybe it's my flannel graph upbringing, but, you know, maybe – Mike one day is going to pick out a few biblical personalities and do a couple of episodes on Elijah or King David or somebody like that. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's, uh, folks, it's an interesting podcast. You'll see a link to it on the host page at Public uh, Display. We, let let me give an example of a, of a topical episode. A okay. few weeks ago, we did an episode on Psalm 91. Yeah. Okay. Which was making its rounds on the internet because mm-hmm. it's, it was being used by, sadly, uh, by by Christians to say, I, I can't get the coronavirus because I'm in the shelter of the Most High, and and this virus is out there for you know people who are unbelievers. It's just dumb stuff, okay? 
So we, we actually did an episode on Psalm 91, and lo and behold, if you're actually reading it as an Israelite, because it's a psalm, the terms plague and pestilence and the, the, you know, these kinds of things that, that show up in the psalm, they're actually names of Canaanite deities, demonic figures, if you will. Oh, really? Okay. Which explains why Psalm 91, when it comes to the Dead Sea Scrolls, was grouped with four other psalms that we don't have in the Bible that are all exorcistic psalms. Psalm 91 was viewed as a psalm of exorcism. And so I go into the background of why this is and dovetail it with a very obvious question that nobody seems to ask. When you get to the New Testament, Jesus is casting out demons left and right. And that's taken as a sign that he's the Messiah. Did we ever ask ourselves, hey, why would they think that? Because there isn't a single example of of the exorcism of a demon in the, in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament. It's three quarters of your Bible. Why would they expect the Messiah to be able to do that? There are no examples of anyone doing this. So we get into that. You know, like, like how does this work? Again, we emphasize on the podcast how an ancient writer and an ancient reader would be parsing the material. I don't, I don't really care. I'm not antagonistic to church traditions or, you know, historic creeds or denominational preferences. And I'm, I'm more, the better word is I'm apathetic. I don't really care because none of those things is the right context for interpreting the Bible. The right context for interpreting the Bible is, is the context that produced the thing, not something that came a thousand years later. So you're more interested in what the text itself will support as opposed to yep. what our religious systems will support. Right. What can the text sustain? That's hmm. all I care about. All right. There you have it, folks. Let's dig back into the book on demons. I mean, you brought it up with that podcast that you just mentioned. We wrapped up our previous segment by acknowledging that some supernatural beings are at odds with their creator. We hear mm -hmm. the word demon thrown around a lot. And yes, I'm pretty sure it was well known in popular culture long before William Peter Blatty made 11-year-old Reagan puke green and spin her head around in defense <laughs> of Father Marin about 50 years ago. But that is kind of where I think our popular culture picture of demons kind of draws from mm -hmm. is things along that line. But you've already told us that demons aren't angels, right? No, they're, you know, again, angel is just a job description. A demon is a supernatural being, okay, like any, any angel is, any messenger, you know, that, that's taking a message you know, from God to somebody else. So, again, in the one sense, yes, they're, they're ontologically the same, you know, angels and demons, if you will. They're spirit beings. Okay, but, but a demon is something very specific. It's actually lesser than a, you know, a run-of-the-mill, if I can use that description, angel. Because in, in, in biblical thought and in you know, intertestamental, the, the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's 400 years that everybody seems to forget about. Mm. But there, you, know, you, have, you have Jewish you know, thinkers and scholars and writers that are writing about their sacred text, what we call the Old Testament. So there's a whole body of literature there, too, that leads up to the time of Jesus. And the New Testament writers are very familiar with that stuff. But in all of that material, a demon was viewed as the disembodied spirit of a dead Nephilim, which comes from Genesis 6, 1 through 4, a dead giant clan descendant that comes from the Nephilim before the time of the flood. That, that's, that's what the origin of a demon was in, in biblical thought, Jewish thought, and whatnot. And that actually meant they were sort of half-breeds. 
they were actually sort of lesser status than a, a quote unquote pure divine being, you know, like, like a, you know, an angel or something like that, or even their fathers, the, the, the sons of God, you know, who cohabit with human women in Genesis six. Again, this is, this is the origin point for demons. They are sort of half breeds. Uh, from this this spawn, if you will, of Genesis six. Now that's a lot of weird stuff, but it, it explains why they were viewed sort of lower on the pecking order, as opposed to again what Paul is going to call principalities and powers, which are actually in the Old Testament the gods of the nations. Daniel, uh, the prophet Daniel in Daniel 10 calls them ruling princes over the nations. These are the gods of the nations. They, they outrank demons. If I could put it this way, demons are concerned with re-embodiment. They can only harass an individual at a time. These other guys, these territorial entities, these, these fallen gods, if you will, these rebellious gods, hostile gods, they're geopolitical. Okay, so they're they're concerned with a whole lot more than turning somebody into a flesh puppet. Okay, this is the difference, the fundamental difference in the in the dark side of the biblical worldview. Uh, you, have, you have you have gods, you've got demons, you've got principalities, you've got powers. You know, you got again a whole assortment of of different entities, and then there's Satan over there. You know, waiting to be introduced here in our podcast. You know, he's he's again ontologically one of these individuals, but he has primacy of a place. He has preeminence for a number of different reasons. We can get into that if you want. Yeah. But there, there are different critters, if you yeah. will. There yeah. are different ranks. There are different levels of th- authority and power. And demons are, are sort of low level, you know, uh, in, in that pecking order. Okay. Now, you kind of gave me a, a mixture here of these gods um, interbreeding with women. Is that where the Greeks kind of drew their idea of demigods, half man, half god, something along that? Is that am it, 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 I connecting is, yeah, proper dots? It is quite similar. Yeah, yeah okay. it is quite similar. I mean, there, there are differences, but we have to realize that the Greeks are getting elements of that story from the Mesopotamians. Okay. I just okay, which, to make sure which I is also cross fertilizing the biblical stuff too. Okay, I just wanted to make sure that I was kind of cross pollinating in a in mm-hmm. a, you know an accurate way. There, you ask the average faithful churchgoer who scored pretty well on their flanograph test about <laughs> why the world is in such a mess, and they're going to tell you about an apple picking incident involving Adam and yeah. Eve. According to ancient Near Eastern literature, there's more to it than that, right? Yeah, and according to the Old Testament, there's more to it than that. You know, again, that, and you're right. If you ask the average churchgoer, you know, why is the world such a mess? Where do we get evil? Yeah. Okay. You know what? Where do we get depravity? You know, the answer they're going to give you is, oh, that's the fall, dummy. You know, haven't you ever read your Bible? And you know, to to which my response would be, well, dummy. <laughs> if you ask the same question to the average Israelite or the first century Jew living at the time of Jesus, that's not the answer he would give you. The answer he would give you is, well, there's actually three reasons why the world is such a mess. What happens in, in Eden, that's the, that's the first step. That's the first rebellion. There's a rebellion of a supernatural being that we come to know later as Satan. And there's also a rebellion of humans, you know, Adam and Eve. But then we have the Genesis 6 thing, you know, follow along. That's, that's also a supernatural rebellion that has a direct impact on the on depravity of, of, of humanity. But then we have a third rebellion. What happens at the Tower of Babel? God disinherits humanity. He divorces himself from humanity. He, he, 
He basically has had enough. And he surrenders them. He assigns them to other members of the heavenly host. We get this from Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, which says, when the Most High, and again, we know who that is in the biblical mind, that's the, the God of Israel, the God of heaven, the God of the Bible. When the Most High divided up the nations when he fixed their borders and boundaries, and that's what happens at Babel. He confuses the languages. And this is where you get all these nations from in Genesis 10. When he did that, he assigned them, he allotted them, he fixed their number according to the number of the sons of God. But Israel which didn't exist at the time of Babel. It's going to exist in a few minutes in the biblical story because the very next chapter, Israel is created, Abraham is called. That's where you get Israel's beginning. Israel is Yahweh's portion, but the rest of the world is not. He has divorced them. Mm. And he assigns them to these other gods, these other sons of God. And we find out later in Psalm 82 that that, this whole thing just goes to hell in a handbasket because – the, the gods of the nations sow chaos among the nations. They're corrupt. They're evil. Uh, they, they enslave people. They sow misery wherever they go. So, you know, it isn't the, – the, the point of the story is not that God is not interested in the rest of humanity. He's not like – he's fed up with them, but he's not like, I, I don't care what happens to you. That's, that isn't it at all because when he does call Abraham right after Babel, he tells Abraham, look, you, you know, you and your wife are perfect for this plan because she can't have kids. She's too old. This is why I picked you because I'm going to supernaturally enable her to have a child. And from that child, there's going to be a new humanity. We're going to call it Israel eventually. And it's going to be through your children that you can't have right now that I'm going to raise up an individual who will be the key to bringing all of these other nations back into my family. I'm still interested in them. I want them to be blessed. But right now they're under punishment. They're get, this, this is quiet time, okay? You know, this is, this is a judgment because of, you know, their continued rebellion at Babel. But God doesn't forget about the rest of the world. He wants the rest of the world brought back home. And he's going to use Israel to do that. But here you have three rebellions that involve supernatural beings and humans. And it, these three things, which happen in the span of Genesis 1 to 11, the first 11 chapters in the Bible, frame the entire rest of the Bible. Mike, this kind of takes us back to our initial question about reading the Bible as if it's story rather than reading it as if it's a textbook. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, again, you, you th- this backdrop, the, what I call essentially the three rebellions, okay, and the, and I think probably the most important you know, is arguably the last one because that creates the fragmentation of humanity. That's why it's Israel against the nations and the rest of the biblical story. And it's also why it's important Jesus when he's when he's around he he does he does interesting things supernatural things in non-Jewish territory to telegraph the fact that I'm not to, yeah okay call me the son of David I'm the Jewish Messiah whatever but I'm actually here for the rest of you too you know and it, it's a it's a really important you know message to telegraph but yeah I mean this this early stuff is told a story. It explains the world uh, that the biblical writer and reader are in, you know, Israel against all these other nations, all these other gods against, you know, the God of Israel. It, it has this explanatory power for them about, you know, depravity. You know, it, we, we didn't even talk about free will, but when God creates humans, we have this famous passage in Genesis 1 that lots of churchgoers wonder about where God says, and he uses plural language, let us create humankind in our image or as our image. And then in the next verse, it flips back to the singular. So God created 
them male and female. He created them. Okay. Why do you have singulars and plurals? It's because it telegraphs the idea that God already has a family. It's these supernatural dudes, you know, the members of the heavenly host. And for, in some way, they are like us, we are like them, and we're all like God. And what is that way? Well, God creates them and us to be his representations, his proxies. In their world and in our world, he gives us abilities to carry out these duties. He shares his attributes with humans, as he did with them. And one of those attributes is freedom, the ability to make an uncoerced decision. And this is why we have evil. We don't have evil because God pushes buttons and, and is behind people prodding them to do wicked things. We have evil because God decided, I'm going to make you like me. You're going to be able to make a free will decision. And sooner or later, you're going to screw up because you're not me. Okay, You, you, don't, you lack my perfect nature. But you know what? I'm willing to, to take this risk because I'd rather have a world that has unfortunate, terrible things in it and you're in it than not have you at all. And, and, and this, is, this, is a, this is the bedrock of, of the biblical story. God wants a family. It comes with costs, and he's not going to give up on it. Mike, I'm kind of like the girl in the commercial that was running around Christmas time that found her mom's tablet that could translate languages, and she grabbed it and went out to talk to the reindeer in the backyard. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I've got like, you know, now I've got about a hundred and a half questions that I want to ask that aren't in my notes, but not long ago my wife and i were watching we're watching our way through the tv series bones we're in season 10 mm -hmm. and there's a psychic on the hot seat as a prime suspect and the fbi agent that's interrogating this psychic quotes here we are back at leviticus folks leviticus 20 <laughs> verse 6 and here's the quote and that was in the episode if a person turns to mediums and necromancers Whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Mm -hmm. Again, we're talking about powers, powers of darkness, etc., which we may have thought was just Satan and his demon horde. We're finding out may have a much deeper and richer meaning than that. But why does the Bible specifically counsel against trying to interact with and get information from the spirit world? Because humans are not part of the spirit world. In other words, when you, when you reach, first of all, the Bible doesn't give commands about things that can't happen. There is no command, thou shalt not flap your arms and fly. Okay, good to know. Okay? Yeah. You know, so, so that the commands are there because, yeah, you can do this, and it's dangerous because this is not your realm. You might contact the other side. You might use a medium or whatever. And you might think you're in control of the situation. You might think that you can successfully parse. Is it, is it truth or is it falsehood? The information given to you. But God is basically saying, not so much. Okay, so this is a prohibition not to prevent people from learning things about the spiritual world because God had given them a priesthood. He'd given the priest various means to tap into the other side, you know, to, to again control the flow of information. Rather, it's I'm going to give you means to do that and you use these means to do these things or you can ask me directly or go through the priest or whatever because you can trust me because I love you. I'm in covenant relationship with you. But if you do this on your own, Okay, you're going to be vulnerable. You're going to be led astray. You're going to be harmed. So don't do it. It's not your turf. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're getting. You are, you are literally out of your league. 
So don't do it. So what about going to, and a, a lot of folks do this, a family member has passed away, they, they had a special attachment to that family member, and they may go to the graveside on special occasions a couple of mm-hmm. times a year and may actually meditate about that family member, some of the memories, or may even try to talk to that family. Is that dangerous ground? Is that tentative ground to be on? Or is that just kind of good emotional stuff of remembering the memory? Yeah, I think it's I think it's normal human conduct. You know, it's interesting because the there are certain things in, in, in the Old Testament. Typically, there, there's a term here called the teraphim. Mm-hmm. The teraphim were were figurines, and as as you know, much as anybody can tell, they were sort of in human form, either a human head or a face, or or even in some cases maybe a body that people would keep in their house. David's wife, for instance, had one in his house, you know. Then you get both sort of neutral and negative references to them. The negative ones are are really like, hey, don't like turn this these things into idols where you worship them or or again try to use them as a means to barter with some spiritual being. That that we don't want you to do. But if you just have them in your house, they're they're kind of like the Polaroids or pictures that we would have around our house of, of of deceased loved ones. They're there to remind us, you know, of that person. And and they would they would do things with teraphim or at grave sites that were just sort of in this category. Yeah, they might go to a grave site and, and pour out a, a, a wine libation. We do the same thing when we lay flowers. Why do we lay flowers at a grave? Are we thinking they're going to like that? Well, we, we might be. It's, it's a gesture of kindness. It's a gesture of, of, of you know, maintaining a connection with that person. So I think it really this kind of thing really depends on what the motivation is, what you think you're doing, you know, what, what you think the result is. Is this, a, is this a cause to some effect that you imagine? Or is it just, a, again, a normal, you know, I want to remember you. Yeah, I think that that you you know you you live on even though the body is dead. And if you can hear me, you know I want you to know I love you. And you have these little conversations. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, or anything harmful about it. If it becomes sort of a of an incantation or some sort of talismanic act, well, you know then you probably need to be careful because if there is a spirit world and you're assuming that when you do this stuff, there might be someone else listening. Mm who can manipulate you. Last year, you published a book, little book, little Mm -hmm. paperback, called Finding the Gospel in Stranger Things. That may be the subtitle, now that I Mm -hmm. think about it. I want to dig into that a little bit on the other side, but both biblical and ancient Near Eastern literature support this idea that the supernatural world we've been talking about to this point existed before the physical realm that we roam in on a daily basis. It existed Mm -hmm. before that physical realm came into being. Is it accurate to say that the Creator God had a family of spirit beings, but wanted another family of flesh and blood beings, and that's where the natural and the supernatural worlds collide? Is is that accurate, or is that kind of stretching it? No, I th- I think that is accurate. I think it's it's unavoidable. I mean, if you read Job thirty eight, where we have the sons of God witness the foundations of the world, the world being created, and the capstone of that is humanity. Very obviously, they did pre-exist humans. Mm. So I think it's unavoidable. 
God wanted a family, and he ended up with two. That sounds like a dangling thread in a sweater that I've just got to pull on. Dr. Michael Heiser is my guest. We've been talking about his book on angels and his book on demons, but the fun is only beginning, folks. We've got a lot more with today's guest waiting for you on the Public Display of Imagination YouTube channel. We call it our Inside the Writer's Workshop segment, and we do one with each author guest that you hear here on the podcast. You can listen to that portion of the conversation right from the host page for each adventure on the Public Display of Imagination website, and we hope you're intrigued enough at this point to join us there as we get a little bit personal with Dr. Michael S. Heiser. We dig into Stranger Things, we talk about divine providence, and we ask why God allows evil. In our conversation today, you heard us talk about reading the Bible as if it's story. You also heard us mention Mike's Naked Bible podcast. I personally think that you'll enjoy his series that works its way through the New Testament book of Acts. That series will connect a lot of dots with the storyline that can be found throughout the Old Testament. And Mike does a great job of highlighting those connections so that they're easy to follow. We'll add a quick link to the first episode in that series on the host page for this adventure. You'll also see book summaries on the host page for this adventure and find hot links to Amazon for many of the books that we talked about over the course of our conversation. I enjoyed talking with Mike about his work, and we're glad we could bring this podcast conversation your way. Hopefully, we ask a lot of the questions that you were interested in, and if we miss something, you can always hunt us down on Twitter or use the contact page on our website to let us know. Thanks for subscribing and listening through whatever podcast listening platform you use to follow the show. Please don't forget to give us a rating and a review, and until next time, remember... The light at the end of someone's darkness may be you. Music for the public display of Imagination podcast is provided by Joe King, J Bone Fettinger, and Zachary Motes. You can find the complete playlist for the Milltown Road Band on Spotify.